This podcast brought to you by Hope 103.2. I don't know if you read the author Bill Bryson, but uh, he has a lovely story in his memoirs, which is describing growing up in the 1950s, what he calls the innocent 1950s. Uh, The book is called The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, and he tells a, a lovely story of a Mrs. Julia Chase of Maryland, who, while on a tour of the White House... April 3, 1956, slipped away from her tour group and vanished into the heart of the building. For four and a half hours, Mrs Chase, who was later described as dishevelled, vague and not quite lucid, wandered through the White House, setting small fires, five in all. Bill Bryson says, that's how tight security was in those days. A not quite lucid woman was able to roam unnoticed through the executive mansion for more than half a working day. He says, you can imagine the response if anyone tried anything like that now. Instantaneous alarms, scrambled Air Force jets, SWAT teams dropping from panels in the ceiling, tanks rolling across the lawns, 90 minutes of sustained gunfire, the awarding of medals of bravery afterwards, including the 76 killed by friendly fire. (laughs) But he says, in 1956, Mrs Chase, when found, was taken to the staff kitchen, given a cup of tea and released into the care of her family and was never heard of again. It's a great uh, shift, isn't it, in my lifetime. And uh, one of the major reasons why life was so free in the the 50s is the truth was generally accepted. If people agreed on general behaviour, as they did, you didn't have to clamp down quite so hard. Today, of course, truth has been much abandoned And so there is an avalanche of rules and regulations to make sure we cooperate. The principle is very simple, that if you throw truth out, then you have to bring down some kind of control. If you don't have free cooperation, it has to be an enforced cooperation. And it's not an accident that today we have so much legislation. That's why our New Testament passage this morning is so important. It's the famous words, world-famous words, where Jesus says in John chapter 8, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And not only are the words globally famous, but they're globally urgent. People really do need to know what Jesus meant when he said these words because they're lifted out of context and they're used in the weirdest and the weediest ways. So we're on a short journey through the chapter 8 of John's Gospel in the mornings. We need to see what Jesus taught, of course, but we also need to see his example, the way he conducted himself because he was living in a very hostile situation and we live in a hostile situation. And we are being pressured to ask the question regularly, is it appropriate to speak of Christ? I found if I go visiting now in North Sydney, in the old days it was appropriate. Now it's considered inappropriate. If I raised the subject of Christianity at a party, it it was considered in the past reasonably appropriate. It's now considered inappropriate. And so we have to ask ourselves whether it's inappropriate to be people who represent Christ. And of course, if you go back to John chapter 8, you'll discover that Jesus set an example for us and we are to walk in his steps and present the great truths of Christ in a way which is clear and loving. Well, I want to divide our passage this morning into two parts. 
The first is verses 31 to 32, and it's the, the title is this. Truth is ultimately a person. And then the second section, which is 33 to 41, is freedom is ultimately a new person. Truth is ultimately a person. Freedom is ultimately a new person. First of all, truth is ultimately a person. Chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who'd believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. The background to this is that Jesus is speaking in the temple. We've seen on the last two Sundays that he's presented a very gracious claim positively, I'm the light of the world. Should be fantastic news for people. And then he presents it negatively as we saw last week, without me, he says, you will die, you'll perish. Now, it's interesting, he's not just offering information. He's not just saying, I will mentally inform you. He's actually saying you're in a darkness, which has got more, that it's more than just intellectual. I'm not just giving you information. I'm going to release you from the darkness of lies and ignorance. Uh, But I'm also going to liberate you, he says, from the darkness of sin and death. It's a very big offer that he makes. And in chapter 8, verse 30, as a result, we read that many put their faith in him. Now, it's great, isn't it? Many put their faith in him. But is it real? Because he immediately turned to them and said, if you remain in my word, you're really my disciples, you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they got angry. So they resisted him. And you have to scratch your head at that point and think, are they really putting their faith in him at all? Verse 30, they have faith, some kind of superficial faith. Verse 31, Jesus shows them how to go forward, how to go deeply. And verse 32, they're feisty. The whole idea that they need to be free is offensive. So let's begin with the question of truth this morning. Uh, This is the first thing that Jesus says if you're a new believer. If you want to know what Jesus would say to you and you've just become a Christian, this is probably what he would say to you. He would probably say, John 8, 31, remain in my word and you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. In other words, he'd probably say to you, stay with what I say. Stick to my message, read the Bible, which is exactly what we say to new believers. We echo Jesus. When a person becomes a Christian, we say to them, get into your Bible. Find somebody who'll teach it to you or read it for yourself. If you've got somebody who'll teach it to you, great. If you've got to do it on your own, do it on your own. But in the end, get into your Bible. That's what I did when I became a brand new Christian. I went and bought myself a Bible. I just started reading from the beginning to the end. Nobody told me what to do. One of the things we're always thinking about at St. Thomas's is how do we get new believers established or grounded in the Scriptures? And that's what Jesus says here. Read the Bible. Then you'll, of course, be able to stand on the promises. You'll be able to build your life on the Scriptures. And you see that he's saying this not because he's got shares in the Bibles and we don't say it because we've got shares in Bible sales. We're not trying to control you when we say read the Bible. We're not trying to tease you when we say read the Bible. We are wanting you to understand the truth so that you will be clear. Just as a parent would say to a primary child, this is the bus number that you're to look for on the front of the bus. If you see this number, that bus will take you safely home. 
Uh, just as the government would say to adults, if you understand, want to understand workplace relations, you must get this little leaflet and read it. And Jesus, you see, wants his people to be safe. So he says, stick to the Bible. Now, the flip side of this, of course, is that uh, there are believers who get no Bible basics. They either are not given them or they think they don't need them. They think that uh, it's not particularly important or they have no interest in them. And I imagine if I was shaking hands with you today, one by one, and I said, what did you read in your Bible yesterday? There'll be a whole lot of people who'll look blankly. Okay, so maybe yesterday was a bad day. What happened uh, the day before yesterday when you read your Bible? Blank. What have you read this week in your Bible? Blank. Well, friends, it's no wonder if you don't read your Bible on a regular basis, you end up with very little understanding. It's no wonder you end up like a tourist in a country where you don't know the language. You've really got to know the Bible. You've really got to read your Bible. Start with Mark's Gospel. Read your Bible. Read the Gospels. Read the letters. Get to know the New Testament. Know what the New Testament is about. Know what the letters are about. Get to know the promises. Now, Jesus says, hold to my teaching. He doesn't just say, read the Bible in general. He says, hold to my teaching. It's very interesting. My word, he says, and the benefits are that you'll be my disciple, you'll know the truth, and the truth will free you. The most wonderful thing, of course, is that you could be his disciple. It's very important that you would know the truth. And then the great blessing is that you'll be set free by the truth. Now, what is the truth? Does the truth mean the red letter section of some Bibles? You know, the very words that Jesus said. Is that what he wants you to read? Is it that there are some phrases that will free you? You know, give me the top 10 phrases that will free me. Now, that's a very important question because people have lifted the phrase, the truth will set you free, out of its biblical context. And they've assumed, you see, that you can just get certain little pieces of information and that will free you. You know, here's your fridge magnet, here's your bumper sticker, that will free you. So I want to ask the question, can information free you? And is that what Jesus wants us to know in this passage? First of all, can information free you? The answer is that information can free you. It's very liberating to get some information. If you're waiting for results from the doctor and they come through good, it's liberating. If you're waiting for exam results and they come through good, it's liberating. If you're wondering where your lost child is and the information comes through, it's liberating. You can be liberated by information. That's why when people come to understand the information of Jesus, it's liberating. Yes, he lived. Yes, he died for me. Yes, he rose again. And I've watched people as a pastor just come to grasp those three things. He really did live. He died for me. He rose again and be liberated. It sets them free. But I don't need to tell you that um, selling truth or commending truth or telling truth today is very difficult. It is much harder now than when I began in this church. Much, much harder. We're in roughly the 20th year of what has been called postmodernism. That's where many, many people turn their back on the modern mindset. If I could give you a little sketch of uh, thinking over the centuries, in the 18th century, there was a shift in people's thinking from religion tells you the facts to science tells you the facts. Can't trust religion. It has to be testable. Now, of course, we know that life does not operate like that. 
But that's the shift that took place in the 18th century. In the 19th century, there was another significant shift where people moved from realizing that people are basically sinful to thinking that people are basically and fundamentally good. And that lasted pretty well through the 19th century and then was blown out of the water for many people by the First World War and the Second World War. And then we emerged from the two world wars with what is really the end of modernism. You know, science will solve all our problems, technology will solve all our problems, patently not solving our problems. And out of the wreckage of modernism has emerged postmodernism. And postmodernism is that uh, dethroning of modernism. It's not a bad thing in a way because it's dethroned the gods of science and technology as if they can solve the world. But postmodernism is also very anti-foundational. That's what makes it so difficult. There is no rock to stand on. Everything is sand. So it's a very weird and difficult time to speak truth to people, isn't it? Of course, if you go to university and you're in the chemistry lab, you can talk about H2O, you know, that doesn't change. If you go into the history department, you can talk about Germany invading Poland in World War II, that's not going to change. But if you start to talk about what you believe or what is valuable or what priorities should be or who should be followed, all of that is seen to be fluid. That's why giving your testimony is pretty straightforward because somebody can stand up and say, this is what Christ has done for me. As long as they say he's done it for me, it's private. And don't go on to say, and therefore you, dot, dot, dot. But evangelism is seen to be pretty evil, isn't it? Because evangelism is saying to somebody, I think you should change. I think you should change your thinking. I think you should change your direction. And so evangelism is seen to be destructive and oppressive and aggressive. Now, if you think um, postmodernism has not crept into the church, just ask yourself how difficult it is to run a discussion with other Christians and get the thinking back to the Bible. You know that discussion groups in churches today are saying, I think, I think, I think, I think. And it's so difficult to get people to go back and say, what does the Bible say? I I don't meet too many Christians who are making their decisions, their big decisions with the compass of the Bible. I meet so many Christians who are making their big decisions with the compass of the world. That's how people in the church are making their decisions. They're thinking like the world. In the old days, they would think like the Bible. However, I don't want you to despair because we are in this um, fog and I don't know how long it'll last post-modernism. It's been around 20 years. Modernism was around for 350 years. Uh, but um, ideas and issues are speeding very quickly and postmodernism could be over, hopefully, in another 24 hours. Well, that would be great. But it looks as though it's in for a while. I don't want you, however, to despair. Just take a leaf out of Jesus' book because what Jesus does in John chapter 8, very simply, is he sets forth the truth. It's still the truth. He shows the consequences if you turn your back on it and he shows the benefits if you pursue it. And that's really what you and I are called to do. Set forth the truth. Show the consequences if you don't. Show the benefits if you do. And the truth has its own way in the power of the Spirit of changing people's lives. It always has and it always will. We just happen to be in a very slippery day. 
Now, I also ask the question, is that what Jesus wants us to know here in this passage? Is he wanting us to know that, look, some information will free you? The answer is yes and no. Yes, verse 32, the truth will set you free. No, verse 36, the Son, the Son of God must set you free. Truth will free you. The Son will cause you to be free indeed. Now, this is very important because, again, people have depersonalized this teaching of Jesus, this very famous teaching. They've made out that you just need a couple of texts. You just need a bit of information. But Jesus says, if you want to be truly free, if you want to be profoundly free, wonderfully free, eternally free, then you're not only going to need the truth, which are words, but you're also going to need the truth that is him. You see, he won't separate truth and him. You need what he says, but you need him if you're to be truly free. So if you've got a friend who's not a Christian and they say or they think I'm perfectly free, I don't want my Christian friend pestering me at all, you've got to mentally remind yourself that Jesus has a freedom which is much bigger and better than the freedom they understand. And if they then say, my truth is fine, I do not need your truth, you have to remind yourself that Jesus said that we are essentially needy of his words if we're to be set free from real lies and darkness. And if your friend says, okay, to get rid of you, give me a New Testament, I'll read it and I'll practice it. You have to remind yourself that Jesus said, no, for a person to be really free, they need Jesus. Because he's not trying to annoy people, although he does annoy the people in John chapter 8, he knows that the slavery that people are in is much bigger than people realize. It's going to need the truth and it's going to need the sun if you're to be ever freed. That leads me to my second thing this morning, which is that freedom is ultimately you becoming a new person. Okay, truth means ultimately you need a person called Jesus and freedom ultimately means you become a new person. This is 33 to 41. I saw in the paper there was a legendary soccer coach who was very unsympathetic to injury and there is a legendary story of him from the 60s where one of his players was hit pretty badly and concussed and didn't know where he was and didn't know who he was and the team doctor was pleading with the coach that he was not to go back on the field. And uh, the, co- the doctor said to the coach, look, he doesn't know where he is and he doesn't know who he is. And the coach, apparently, this famous unsympathetic coach said, look, just tell him his Pelé and point him to the park. Now, it's a tough call, isn't it, really, you know, to have this whispered in your ear, your Pelé, get on the park. And of course, um, you need more than just something barked in your ear if you're to perform. If you've got a really deep need, you're going to need a really deep solution. You're going to need to be transformed. You're going to need to be changed. Jesus, in chapter 8, verse 33, is talking about a freedom which his listeners are against. They say, we're Abram's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free. You see, his listeners don't get it. They think that freedom is an outward thing. You know, I'm in a free country. I go to church freely. I'm an Anglican freely. I'm free, they say. 
It's surprising, isn't it, that the Jews considered themselves to have never been slaves when they'd been slaves in Egypt and to Babylon and to Persia and to Greece and now to Rome. But of course, what they're saying is God rules everything. We belong to God. You know, we're safe. All is well. We belong. We've got this sort of nominal link with God. And Jesus says in chapter 8, verse 34, I'll tell you what real slavery is. Everyone who sins is a slave. Well, there's a frightening thought, isn't it? I say this to you this morning, and I say this to me this morning, if you sin, you're a slave. And you're just, Jesus says, on borrowed time. One writer says, the most vicious form of bondage is not bondage to oppressive political systems, it's slavery to failure, to sin. The evil habits, he says, that we cannot break, the selfish desires that we must gratify, and the shameful guilt that we cannot escape. It's true, isn't it? One of the most wretched, dreadful slaveries that we ever experience is being inwardly in the grip of something. We can be in the most wonderful circumstances. We could be on an island holiday and we are absolutely consumed with jealousy or rage or anger or greed or lust or fear, they grip us. They drive us. We're restless. There is something even worse than that, however, and that's in chapter 8, verse 37, which I think is an excellent definition of real sin, and that is to be hostile to Jesus. He puts it like this, Jesus says, yet you're ready to kill me, to get rid of me, because you have no room for my word. That's the real essence of sin. Christ, get out of here. Christianity, get out of here. Discipleship, get out of here. That's the essence of sin. And the price you pay, as we read in chapter 8, verse 35, is that you you therefore have no place in God's family. You're just in his world on borrowed time. The rejecting of Christ means that you just have to hang around in the world until finally you are rejected by Christ and that's absolutely dreadful. It's literally hell. And it's only when we see this slavery of saying no to Christ and therefore being in the bondage of sin and gripped by sin and going eventually to judgment that we are so grateful for Jesus Christ. We ask the question, is it possible that anybody could save me from rejecting Christ and being consumed by sin and eventually being judged and sent to hell? Is there anyone who could save me from this escalator downwards? And the answer of the Bible comes back, it's Jesus Christ. And he is able to save us from a slavery which is much worse than outward slavery. See, Jesus is not now talking about some small slavery. He's not missing the important headlines of the newspapers. He's not missing what's going on in the world television news. He's not reading the wrong paper. He's not suddenly caught up in the church times or something like that. He's identified the big issue which really enslaves people, and that's sin. He's put his finger on the real problem. The problem with uh, so many other people, of course, is that they miss what Jesus sees, and therefore they just lurch from some kind of outward slavery to then some kind of moral slavery, and they never really get saved from the real slavery. 
Now, Jesus is a realist. He recognises the world does not need new structures. Mostly, what the world mostly needs is new people. The Son, he says, can make you free. Now, how does he do this? Well, the answer is mostly in verse 35. You see that uh, the son has a permanent place in the family, so he's okay. Well, how are you going to get a permanent place in the family? The answer of the New Testament is that the son, that's Jesus, who has a permanent place in the family, will give up his permanent place in the family so that you can have a permanent place in the family. And that's what he does at the cross. For people like us who are on death row, he steps out of the family and out of the fellowship in order that you, the believer, might step into the family and into the fellowship. You remember Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to the cross to prepare a place for you. When we grasp what he did on the cross, when we see there that on the cross he gave up his place so that we'd have a place, And when we see him on the cross and we realise there he was rejected by God so that we'd never be rejected by God. And when we realise that on the cross he took the darkness and he took the death so that we would have the light and the life. And we put our trust in him. We are amazingly, profoundly, spiritually and eternally set free. We are free from the prospect of ever being removed from God. We are free to enjoy God's acceptance forever. We're free from the penalty that sin deserves and we're free to enjoy all that Christ deserves. We're free from the ability of sin to destroy us and drag us down to judgment and hell. And we're free for the spirit of God to change us and take us to glory. We are forgiven and we are reborn. This is an inward change. It means a person has a new heart, they have a new life, they become a new person. Sadly, of course, as we see in the rest of our passage, the people Jesus was speaking to rejected this because they could not cope with the idea that they had an inward problem. They just resisted and resisted the whole idea that they had a need and therefore they didn't need a saviour and they missed everything. But to those who see their need and who see the Saviour, they are wonderfully freed. D.L. Moody, the preacher, used to say, you prove you're a sinner and I'll prove you've got a Saviour. And when he was preaching once, um, an old man, a very feisty, crusty, difficult old man was converted. And uh, his servant back at the house said, I don't know what's happened to my master. It's the same suit, but a different man inside. That's what being free means you become a new person. So the shock of our passage, you see, is that if you want to find the truth, you'll need the words, but they'll lead you to the person of Jesus. Truth is ultimately a person. That's what the world misses. Truth will set you free, says the world. Ah, Jesus says, I'm the truth. And then the other shock, of course, is that ultimately freedom means that you become a new person. Freedom, you see, is not just a new outward thing, it's a new inward thing. And I wonder if non-Christians in our day have any idea how real, how bad the slavery is that they belong to. They have no Christ. It's just hell waiting to happen, isn't it? And I wonder whether the Christian, whether we realise the great freedom which we belong to, to know Christ 
It's just heaven waiting to happen. Well, let's pray. Let's bow our heads. Our gracious God, we thank you this morning that you have sent into the world, undeserved by us, someone who would bring the light of life and would do that by taking the darkness of death in our place. We thank you that it's possible through the Lord Jesus to have a place forever in your family. We thank you that it's possible through the Lord Jesus to have a new life in our heart. We thank you that it's possible through the Lord Jesus to have a new home in the future. We pray that you would help us to remain in your word and to be a true disciple and to know the truth and to be truly free. And we pray that you would help us also in a difficult environment to tell the good news and that you would give people the ears to hear and the will to respond. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Start your day with life words. Subscribe to Hope 1032's free daily email devotional at hope1032.com.au.